Today is Friday. Not my usual day for releasing new episodes, but today I'm posting a bonus episode for future healthcare professionals. We're trying to make the world a better and healthier place. And what better way to do that than give the future of healthcare some support, or at least engage in conversation that they might find helpful to hear. Podcast did not exist when I was growing up, so I figured I'd take this as an opportunity to do something meaningful. So anyone visiting from aspiring MDs, welcome to the regular listeners. You're always welcome to listen in if you'd like, but y'all know that already. Without further ado, here's a bonus episode featuring Dr. Asante Dixon. Hello, hello. This is Psych Adjacent, and I'm your host, Dr. Thomas Hughes. Very happy to be back for another week. There are no announcements today, so we're going to roll right through. With me today is Dr. Dixon. Say hello to the audience, Dr. Dixon. Hey, everybody. Asante Dixon here. Thank you so much. Thank you so very much for having me on the program today. Are you ready to get started? Let's do it. All right, let's get to it. All right, we're back. I always like to give a very brief introduction so people know who they're listening to. You are Dr. Asante Dixon. You attended Georgetown University for medical school and for your intern year. You attended Winthrop University Hospital at Stony Brook for residency in diagnostic radiology. You attended Stanford University for fellowship in neuroradiology. For the past eight years, you have been the chairman of the Department of Radiology at White Oak Medical Center in Maryland, and you've mentored dozens of medical students, given countless hours uh, of lecturing to students at the grade school level, college level, and the grad school level. And now we have arrived at what prompted this podcast today. You, sir, are the president and co-founder of Ascension Medical Educators. And, uh, I, you know, I was going to give a whole blurb about what AME is. Uh, but with you sitting right here, I thought it would be best for you to explain to the audience exactly what Ascension Medical Educators is. So if you could tell the audience what your company's mission is and uh, what is Ascension Medical Educators. All right. Thank you so much. So um, Ascension Medical Educators. Ascension Medical Educators is a professional medical education firm uh, where we specialize in giving aspiring physicians um, and physicians uh, the tools necessary to be as efficacious as possible. So what does that mean? Um, so there are multiple pipelines that lead to careers in medicine. We focus right now on the MD or DO tracks. Okay, so physician, MD or DO. We're not yet on the RN or nurse practitioner stage in earnest, but we do have a couple clients who are asking for us to go that route and we may very well in the near future expand to that. Um, the core components of the company are advising and mentoring people at various stages. 
what we're trying to do is optimize the processes required to enter medical school uh, and medical school and postgraduate training optimization. Additionally, we offer executive coaching for practicing physicians who are looking for things like alternate opportunities outside of their primary clinical jobs or navigating the medical pipeline that's leading to certification, certification examinations, recertification. So essentially think of Ascension Medical Educators as a coach that is following you through the process of entering medical school, traversing medical school, internship and residency, fellowship support, and then practicing physician maintenance and support. So this is so soup to nuts. This is full service then. This is uh, following somebody before, during, and after. That is correct. That is correct. And that is the uniqueness of the company. And that is also the difference between Ascension Medical Educators and anything else that you're seeing out there today. What was the inspiration for all this? This is, this is a big operation you're, you've started and you're planning on growing. What, what inspired you to start something so big? You know, the phrase uh, necessity is the mother of invention. Um, I would say and modify that to say struggle, challenge, and getting kicked in the gut is the mother of invention in terms of Ascension Medical Educators. Okay. Um, I have gone through the process, as you have, of medical education. It is not easy. I always state that training to be a doctor is like training to be an astronaut. Um, everybody would like to be an astronaut. It seems cool, right, to be able to fly around in space and in rockets and, you know, maybe take a a day of math in your head, you're like, yeah, I could do math for a day, you know, because you make it up because you don't know really what it takes to be an astronaut. And the suit seems cool, right? I'd like to walk around in a space suit. That seems cool. But truly, the training to become an astronaut is extremely complicated and extremely competitive. And most people don't realize just how competitive and just how intense it is right. to become an astronaut. Right. And doctor is the same thing. Everybody watches TV and they're like, oh, that's cool. I'd like to squirt a needle in the air and you know have some you know syringes and stuff like that. That seems cool. Oh, I'd like to wear a white coat. But the truth is medical training is extremely competitive to enter and extremely difficult to maintain your position because the competition throughout the process is also equally as competitive. Right. And actually, when you get out, to maintain your position as a practicing physician is also uh, extremely competitive, if not with yourself, and requires a huge amount of time, time commitment, and sacrifice. So Ascension Medical Educators comes from my own experience in that process and saying to myself, you know what? I struggled along the way, and what I want to do is share the lessons that I've learned with others who are coming behind me to make their process, to make their pathway 
easier, right? So for example, anybody who comes through the medical pathway, you either know it all, which is very few, or you don't, and you have to learn along the way. Those of us who learn along the way, we either learn through lumps and bumps, or we learn through lumps and bumps and by having somebody, a mentor who assists us in changing the way we approach medical education. That was my story. I met a gentleman named David Taylor when I graduated Cornell and I entered a post-baccalaureate program at Georgetown called the GEMS, the Georgetown Experimental Medical Science Program. I met Dave Taylor and David Taylor changed the way I approached medical education. And that is something that I am forever indebted to him for. And guess who he is now? He is now the CEO of Ascension Medical Educators. We uh, work together. Oh, okay, okay. And what I have done is I envisioned a process where we take David Taylor's, David Taylor's mind and we put it together in a company in which we package it to be able to provide it to others as a service. And that's the inspiration for Ascension Medical Educators. And that's the brief structure. Uh, lastly, I say, it's almost like, uh, you know, I grew up uh, in New York and on Saturdays, they used to have something at three o'clock called Kung Fu Theater, right? So at three o'clock every Saturday, they put on one of those Kung Fu Theater movies, right? The Five Deadly Venoms. You know, all those type of movies, I don't know if you're into them or those who are listening, but they're those kung fu movies. And one of the themes was always like the drunken guy who was on the street and, you know, everybody used to kick him and, you know, he would be begging and people would kick him and say, go away, you dirty beggar. And then he found himself in a school where a master taught him the newest tactic or the newest style of kung fu. And he spent years training and punching this bamboo out in the bush, right? And then eventually he comes out at the end of the movie and he's fighting next to the master and they're whooping everybody's behind. And he's <laughs> using the tactics that he learned in those years of training with the master and the master's doing the one hand and he's out there doing the snake technique and the this and the that and they're busting behind left and right. That is Ascension Medical Educators. I... David Taylor, he is the master. I am the student who has now become one of the masters and we're out there together fighting the bad guys. Well, this is uh, this is one of the reasons why I had you come on to the show. When we first met each other, it was uh, on Clubhouse and one of the rooms was about mentorship. If I remember, it was a few weeks ago, but I, I believe it was about mentorship. And I think the general public understands that getting into medical school, going through medical school is tough, but on an individual level, it's kind of hard to, to really hear those stories of people that are really struggling, trying to get in and look for support. Right. So this, this is why you're here, you know, cause I want to hear about these support systems and I want to learn about other support systems, um, you know, in the future, of course, but today we're, we're talking primarily about, about medical school, just, just expanding right. and getting more in depth as to what goes into that. So, in terms of uh, in terms of actually getting into medical school, that was one of the biggest things that I think the students in that room were struggling with the standardized tests. Yeah. And when I say standardized tests for people that are not familiar, we're talking about something called the MCAT. We're talking about step one, two and three. There's been some changes to those exams. 
And I was curious if you had any um, any comments about those changes and why those changes were made. Absolutely. Okay, so you're 100 percent correct. Uh, There have been changes to some of the standardizing exams and some of the curriculum that we're seeing in medical education. True fact. Um, But what I want to remind everybody of is that this is not new. Right. Medical education is continually evolving and has been so from its inception. So. When you think about what it takes to be successful in medical school, you have to step outside, come back to 50,000 feet and ask yourself, what does it take to be successful? It requires a knowledge as to how to absorb high volume information. Okay. And high volume information is not sufficient. You also need to be able to process that information in an effort to gain the trust and earn the trust of the public for you to engage with citizens in the most intimate parts of their lives. Okay. Curriculum over time has always had that as a goal as to how to treat medical students, how to, how to, how to teach medical students. But as medicine evolves, so do the methodologies necessary in order to optimize the means by which physicians engage with citizens, engage with their patients, all right? So, when you look at something like uh, the MCAT or the USMLE, right, you're looking at algorithms, if you will. You're looking at hardcore structures that societies have made, medical societies have created in an effort to try to assess who meets criteria to be able to earn the right to then train to treat the public. Over time, these societies themselves are either volitionally realizing that they are not meeting standards in order to optimally treat patients or due to societal pressures or societal changes they realize that we must improve and or modify the means by which we are assessing students on their road to physicianship. And these are changes that have happened for decades, but for those of us living today, we're realizing that there are changes going on now. And the question is more that I'd like to bring to the audience, which is how are you going to prepare for the changes that are occurring now? Right. And if we come back to 10, if we come back in 10 more years, guess what? There are going to be changes again. And so the question again will be in 10 years, how are you going to be optimally prepared for the changes that these medical societies are enacting are enacting right now, which will affect the way or the ease or lack thereof of you entering the medical pipeline. Right. So. In 2015, there were some realizations that there needed to be focused more on real life patient interactions. And changes started all the way as far back as 2015 that we're seeing now 
in terms of how standardized tests are being written and created to engage with pre-medical students and medical students, right? Um, what people need to realize is that historically, you could do relatively well with standardized tests if you were purely, purely somebody who was just good at remembering stuff, right? right? If you had like what people refer to as a photographic memory, whatever that means, right? But more and more now from 2015 on, if you purely are a rote memory type of learner, you're gonna have difficulty with standardized tests because the tests now are also pushing you to challenge your understanding of information and also your ability to practically apply information. So those of you who are listening right now who want to enter medical school through the MCAT or you're in medical school and you're looking at USMLE, ask yourself, as you're reading your passages, are you somebody who is just regurgitating passage information and graphs and charts? Or are you comfortable if I were to grill you on the understanding and then application of said paragraph? I can tell you that when I was a medical student, or forget that, when I was a college student at Cornell, I was very good at memorizing information. Okay. Right. right. And I was very comfortable with memorizing information. But then if you said to me, all right, talk to me about the passage that you just read. And actually I have a problem over here and I'd like you to apply what you learned in that passage to this, pro to this problem. I'll tell you right now, as my partner, Dave, Dave, Dave Taylor says, I'd be uh, jammering and stammering, right? Abba, 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 abba. Because I really did not have the ability to practically apply information. Right. So what what I want people to take from the changes in medical education is not so much to get into the weeds of what USMLE is doing and what is what they're not doing, because for us to talk about that in this podcast, we'd be here until about midnight. Right. But what I want people to take away is what is the approach to the changes that trust me are being made and how what is the umbrella tactic to approaching that change. And that is, how do you approach information? How comfortable are you with information? And how are you going to apply an overall tactic of understanding in an effort to practically apply information to patient care? That's what the changes are overall being made in medical education standardized testing. Those are the changes, right? And you need to be continually intentional about developing the skills necessary to adapt and succeed. And that's, again, one of our primary, primary skills of Ascension Medical Educators, which is we are teaching people how to do that. So MCAT could change today, it could change tomorrow, it could change next week, and you will be ready. That's what Ascension Medical Educators is going to provide, is what you're saying. That's what we're going to provide. Yeah, right? I that's mean, that's what we're going to provide. Because I, I, I've always thought that over the past 20 years or so, uh, since I, well, let's say 13 years, I, I'm saying yeah. 20 because that's when I graduated high school, 2006, so maybe 15 years. Bad math. <laughs> so, um, when I when I think about the the standardized tests and how they're applied and how they're administered, I always think of it this way: when you change a test 
courses like Kaplan and uh, there's a few other ones. I always yeah. imagine that they're going to adapt to those changes and the people that are going to get access to those study materials are going to get access to the tips and tricks that Kaplan investigates and the people that have money to afford those tips and tricks that Kaplan provides, they get a leg up over people that can't afford it. That's always been my concern. So, all right. So you hit something that is extremely important. Okay. That is a perception that we all have and had. Okay. Right. Until we've seen the light. Okay. And if you think about it, medical education, it's a business. All right. When you apply to a school, you don't just apply, put a paper in an envelope or click send. You have to put a check in the envelope or you have to download your credit card information. Right. So is it really in the interest of medical education to tell everybody what is really going on? I say no. Right. They are not in the interest of telling you what is really going on. They're not in the interest of telling you what resources are really effective and what resources aren't really effective. When you, when you say what's really going on, you're, you're talking about telling you the every, not every question specifically, but at least every topic that's going to be tested on the, the test. Well, I would even come even broader. You talked about your, your perception or, you know, your thought process was if you have access to some of these high marketing value companies like Kaplan, Princeton Review, yeah. that you have an advantage, right. right? But there are statistics, there are numbers out there that can actually prove that that is false. Okay. Okay. Not only is that false, but nobody except people who have been shown the light know that there are numbers out there and statistics that show that is false. That is that is held back, right? And even medical schools won't necessarily tell medical students that they're wasting their money a lot of times, right? So the truth is most people who sign up for the $3 million Kaplan course, they are not going to statistically increase their scores. So I'll make it simple. You have somebody like me, when I was in college, who was not in the top of my class at Cornell University when it came to biology and chemistry, I absolutely was not. Then you have this other individual here, they are already in the 98th, 99th percentile. They are blowing everything away, right? They don't know what it is to pass. They only know high pass, right? If the two of us go into a high marketing value program like Kaplan or Princeton Review, we spend our $2 million to do so, I'm going to tell you that my average grade of 75 will likely statistically only increase to about 77. Or I'll stay at 75, or I might even drop to 73% after I finish the class. The person who started off at 96 or 97%, the only thing they're gonna do now is to go from 96 to 98 or 97 to 99, okay? They don't go backwards, they only go forward. So if you look at it from 
an algorithmic point of view or a statistical point of view, the only person who's really gaining value from that, that Kaplan service is the person who already started at 96%. You starting at 77, 80, statistically, you are not going to gain the amount of percentile increase by doing Kaplan and Princeton review that's gonna take you from non-viable to viable, which is really, you need a 75 to an 86 jump. Right. You, you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. You need 75 to 86 or 90. That other person doesn't need 98 to 120. They only need 98 to 99 and they don't even need it. They just need it because they're people that are high functioning people. Mm. Mm. Right. Yeah. So so this is what I say when I say it's great that you asked that question, because this is why Ascension ed medical educators exist, because we all went through the process with those type of assumptions. And we're wasting time and we're wasting money because we don't know what resources are, evaluate, are, are available and we definitely don't know how to apply and utilize those resources. We're just listening to people on the street. That's what we do. Let's be honest. How many times did you go through pre-med and medical school and residency and you decided what to use based on what your friends told you when you were sitting at Starbucks talking about how hard stuff is? Well, unfortunately, that's a lot of medicine. It's word of mouth, unfortunately. Yeah. It's word of mouth, right? Yeah. So you're learning about what to take, what not to take, what to do, what not to do, what read, what to read, what not to read based on word of mouth. Now, what other what other entity exists that is professional or use my astronaut example i'm going to bet i'm not an astronaut i've never been through astronaut school but i'm willing to bet that if i want to be an astronaut and i want to apply for astronaut school i am not going to merely use a conversation i had with you and i at starbucks over what astronaut book to read i'd imagine right? that that's a huge risk to take, right? Right, Because that really, that, that means that I have to depend on you as being a professional astronaut educator. Right. And you and I, most likely when you hear about stuff, you and I are at the same level, we're the same person. So how could you be a professional astronaut educator and you and I struggling to get into astronaut school the same, right? And that's why guidance and coaching is essential as you navigate this medical pipeline. So I've given the opportunity, and this is whether it be with tests or just medical education in general, are there changes that you uh, either see coming already or you would like to see happen going forward in the future? So again, think of it as a continuum, as we stated, changes have been happening for the decades, but let's start about the 2015 changes on to now. Um, Tests are becoming more focused on your understanding and ability to practically apply in an effort to increase the efficacy, if you will, of the physician's ability to engage with the patient and patients that vary. And we all know in 2021, one of the reasons why this may be happening is because look at our patient population, right? I'm in DC, Maryland, Virginia. I'm originally from New York. You're on the West Coast in LA, okay? And if you look around on the street, just go to the grocery store, look at the varying amount of people from different countries, languages, religions. Uh, look at who could potentially walk through the door of any healthcare system at any given time. 
So with that being said, you need to train an army of physicians that are able to give maximum health care while modifying on the fly as patients' needs change from patient to patient 15, 20 times a day. You may be in 20 different countries as you talk to 20 different patients on any given day in your practice, right? Yeah. So I would like to see the changes that are going on from the, uh, the USMLE, it needs to now continue into the residency and the fellowship stages, right? A lot of the patient interaction modules and focuses, right, that we are seeing in medical school after you get to residency, those things kind of fall off. But you need to continue that training so that physicians, as they go through the linear education, they're able to practice, practice, practice. So by the time they get out and they're practicing on real people as attending physicians or independent physicians, they haven't forgotten these things. You know as well as I do. If I beat you over the head right now over how a collecting system works in a kidney, and then I don't ask you that question for six more years, what are the chances that in six more years you're going to be able to explain to me how a collecting system works in a kidney six years after you haven't seen or heard or discussed that collecting system? I would say right? zero. Zero, zero, right? Yeah. And as Dave says, you're going to be stammering and jammering if somebody asks you to describe how a collecting system works. And that's a concern I have in medical education right now. There is not enough continuation of some of these patient interactive skills and challenges throughout the medical pipeline. That's what I want to see change. Well, you spoke on diversity in the patient population. And I know, I mean, we, we're all aware of this. There's been a, um, a movement to diversify the, the army that you're talking about, the soldiers in the right. army, which are the doctors. Do you think there is currently a equal opportunity for minorities to pursue a career in medicine? <clears throat> so, translation, is there bias that prevents certain people from entering medical school or medical education and becoming physicians, correct? Are there barriers? So, yeah, any way you want to frame it. Are there barriers? Is there bias? Are there equal opportunities? You are correct. It's all the same thing. Yeah. It's all the same <laughs> thing. Right. So the reason I ask that is because this word bias is everywhere now. Right. right? If you type in the word bias in medicine, uh, Google explodes. So let's reframe it this way. No question, bias exists in medicine. Bias has always existed in medicine. And if you ask me, bias will always exist in medicine to a certain degree. But bias over time has been modified and has improved in terms of how it manifests, in terms of teaching, curriculum, and actually how patients feel biased. Believe it or not, it is better now than it was 10 years, 20 years ago. I would agree with that. I would agree. Okay. But let's just set the foundation that, yes, there is bias. However, for those listening who are in this pipeline of medical education, instead of focusing on the bias that we know exists, Let's focus on how we're going to overcome 
bias that exists, whether it be hard, medium, or soft bias, or mild, moderate, or severe bias, how are we going to overcome it? Let's change the mindset as medical pipeline individuals from the bias is horrible, the bias is horrible, to how do we solve the bias problem and how do we overcome the bias? Let's take it from that. So number one, you have to be resilient in the way you pursue medicine, all right? You're never gonna go through this medical pipeline and not get lumps and bumps and bruises, skin, knees, you know, your fingers are going to get bent back just like you did when you're playing in the driveway in the cold and the basketball hits you. You're going to be hurt, but you have to learn how to be resilient. Number two, you must be persistent because whether bias exists or not, that should not stop you from pursuing your goal to become a physician. And I don't want people to get caught up in what type of bias it is. It exists. Here's a good example. When I was in my post-bac program at Georgetown, we were studying every day to improve how we studied, how we learned. Dean Taylor was our coach teaching us, teaching us. And I had a classmate who used to say to me all the time, Asante, you ever noticed they don't have any black professors here? And I would say, yeah, that's true. I mean, there aren't any black professors, not that I know of, I don't know any. And she would say, so what are we gonna do about it? And I would kind of be quiet because I'd be like, well, I mean, uh, I'm just a post-bac student. I mean, like, what, what am I gonna do about it? And she would say, that's the problem right there. The problem is that people don't wanna do anything about it. You just wanna admit it, but then you put your head down and then you leave it to me to fight this problem on my own. And we would have these conversations almost daily because she was adamant that her job at that time was to fight the lack of diversity in the faculty. And I'm gonna be honest, and she could have called me all kinds of names when she went home, I'm sure she may <laughs> have. But I said, listen, I am not in a position right now in this post-baccalaureate program where I am learning how to study, learning how to change my approach to medical education to be simultaneously fighting the administration over the lack of black and brown physicians who are our, our faculty members. I said, I just, this is just not my time. When I get where I need to be, I am going to then use my experience, use my title, and use my privilege as being a physician or a physician in training at such time to then address this, but now is not the time. Long story short, that individual failed out at the end of the year, okay? And she failed out. I'm not going to say why. I'm not on the admissions committee. I don't know why. All right. I know is that one day we were sitting next to each other, and the next day when they said, you know, welcome to the class of XYZ, she was not there. But I do know that throughout her time, she organized small protests, uh, petitions. She would uh, challenge a lot of faculty about the lack of diversity, et cetera. And I always remember that because 
don't get me wrong. Of course we know bias exists. Look at me, right? How would I sit here and say anything other or to the contrary that bias exists? You know, as a black man, I know I have been the victim, am the victim, and will continue to be the victim of certain levels of bias, particularly in medicine. But I think that for people listening, what I want you to take from this is, number one, there's a time and a place to fight the system. There's a time and a place to fight the power, public enemy, right? But I want you to put things in perspective and understand that there are times where you have to let things go so that you can gain the armor to then come back and attack it ready, let, later when you're ready, right? So bias is going to be fought through resilience, persistence, and continued motivation. Eyes on the prize, another documentary I love, yeah. right? Yeah. Eyes on the prize, you have to motivate, persist, and you have to be resilient. And that's my best starting answer to the question of what is bias in medicine? Does it exist? How does it affect people, particularly brown and black people, right? Yes, it exists. But we at Ascension Medical Educators, we are pushing forward successfully in changing the mindset of people from, yes, it exists and let's fight it, to yes, it exists, but how am I going to change my mindset to overcome it, to then come back to be its adversary? I, uh, I also think it's a matter of time also. Um, I mean, what we're discussing right now is an entire culture shift because I've always believed that Af African, black and brown people, we have all the capabilities to do things, but our, our culture doesn't necessarily push people towards it like other cultures might. Changes are occurring. We all know we are living now in what people are referring to as the George Floyd time. Yeah. Right? Where there is more attention being paid to systemic racism. And that systemic racism is not solely in medicine, it's throughout our culture, throughout our society. People are now paying attention to how systemic racism exists and how it affects and keeps certain members of the population suppressed or marginalized while others escape it. But I wasn't alive in the 60s, but I am willing to bet that in the 60s and in the early 70s, people like you and I had the podcasts of the day which was probably interviews on radio, right? Right. Where they said the same thing, which is it's only a matter of time before this is either solved or is decreased significantly. And here we are 40, 50, 60 years later. And we are saying the same thing, which means two things from my perspective. One is... Time is a continuum. Things change, but change slowly. And also, everything is relative. So I don't want people listening to this to sit on their laurels and say, it's only a matter of time, right? I want people to say, yes, it may be a matter of time, but as that time arrives, I want to focus and put my best effort forward to do what is best for me 
to be as successful as possible in this medical pipeline, given all the racism and bias and sexism that exists. Despite that, I am focused to be as efficient and successful as possible. Oh, yeah, yeah. When I when I say a matter of time, I don't mean just a matter of time. I'm talking about everything you discussed. And I don't think this is just going to happen overnight. That's what I mean by that's what I mean by time. It's not going to happen right. overnight. OK, agreed. That's all agreed. I mean. <laughs> uh, uh, a matter of time. Agreed. But. My kids. I will be honest, I'm not sure if my sons won't be having a conversation with your sons in another 25 years and still saying it's only a matter of time, even though there will likely be significant diminution in the amount of bias and racism in medicine between this interview and their interview. Yeah. And the reason for that is because this is a country that I'm not stepping on anybody's toes by saying this country structurally, economically was built on a system of division and division by economic status and race. So that matter of time is relative. It's relative from the 60s to now, and it will be relative from today in our interview to when our sons are talking in another 20 years. Gotcha. All right. Well, we're gonna we're gonna switch gears a little bit because you mentioned uh, economics there. Okay. So yeah. let's talk a bit about the the cost of a fi- of a medical education. So, medical education is not cheap. Um, if you are pursuing medical education, you have to be prepared to see a whole lot of decimals and zeros on any account balance sheet you may have because just as your college education is or was not cheap, medical school is gonna cost you tens of thousands of dollars, right? On average, when you come out of medical school, you're gonna be looking at anywhere from state medical school to private medical school, anywhere from 80 to $100,000 to four to $500,000 worth of tuition that you're gonna have to be paying. Right. And you ask yourself, well, four to five hundred thousand dollars. Are you telling me that there are medical schools where tuition every year is 80 to 100 thousand dollars? The answer is absolutely. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. And then remember this, that just got you in the door to get in a seat. You still haven't eaten anything. You haven't consumed any liquids yet. You don't have a place to live. You don't have bus fare, token fare, car, gas. You have nothing of the sort yet. So add that on top of it, right? And that's why medical education can be extremely expensive. So we also, at Ascension Medical Educators, we discuss with people what is the best way to pay for their medical journey, right? What are the resources available to assist people in affording this medical journey that you have to understand and accept is going to be expensive, no matter which way you go. Because then again, expensive is relative, right? $60,000 to some people is not a lot of money, but $60,000 to a lot of people, that is just insurmountable and just can't happen unless somebody helps you pay for that. Yeah. Right? So yes, very expensive. 
However, just like bias, racism, and anything else we've talked about today, the focus needs to be not how ridiculous it is, because that's just what it is, but how are you going to overcome that barrier? And there are ways to do it. And just like Kaplan, Princeton Review, Exam Crackers, and every other flashy source resource that's out there, there is not a lot of education to undergraduate students and medical students about how to pay. You have to dig through that jungle by yourself without any assistance. You either are lucky and you know somebody who can tell you how to do it. You're either lucky and you're a stellar student and somebody grabs you out of the pack and says, you're stellar, we'll pay for you. Or you suffer and bump and bruise and hit your head all over the place and learn about things way too late and potentially even be dissuaded from pursuing medicine because somebody says to you, uh, hey, uh, I don't think you're gonna make it because I'm looking at you from the outside and I don't think you have that money, doc. So guess what? I think you should just hang it up. And many of us, particularly people of color, when we're dissuaded from medicine early, we usually listen. When somebody says, you can't do it, a lot of us, because medicine is a challenge mentally and economically, we say, you know what, you're right. You know what, you're right. I don't have 60,000. I don't have 100,000. I'm done. I'm calling it quits. Yeah, that that's a part. Of, that's a part of that change that I think we're that we were just discussed in uh, the last topic, which is just having those doors open and making people aware that they're there. You know, um, yeah. So, in respect to the years that you spent in training, student yeah. loan debt, psychological strain, <laughs> would you still recommend that people pursue a career in medicine? So, I say absolutely. I absolutely would suggest that people pursue a career in medicine. However, I will also say that you need to start engaging in what Dave Taylor, the guru of Ascension Medical Educators always says, you have to have realistic self-appraisal, okay? You have to, from early, ask yourself, why am I doing this? If you are going into medicine because you've watched Grey's Anatomy and ER and you saw somebody squirt some, some, some uh, saline in the air and a needle and you were like, I want to do that, right? That's probably not a good reason to go into medicine these days, okay? Because as you stated, you want to take on hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of debt just because you wanted to squirt a syringe in the air, right? Yeah. That makes no sense to me. Right. Also, are you somebody who is willing to be persistent, resilient and motivated for extended periods of time? If you are, come on in. Right. Thirdly, are you somebody who needs to be in the limelight and you need to get paid for everything you do? You need to be recognized for everything you do. And you're essentially a medical uh, social influencer in your mind, okay? And you only want people to see you at your best and you gotta be shining and people give you likes for everything you say and you do, I'm gonna tell you medicine's probably not for you, right? And unfortunately, there are many, many students that come through the Ascension Medical Educator Pipeline that we have to help them make that decision because they're only in it because of what they saw was shiny 
And after we assess them, we say, you know what? You're probably not made out for this. Now you're your own person, you can do what you want, but our suggestion is you probably don't pursue medicine, right? We're very honest with people because we're not here just to take people's time and take people's money, right? Yeah. We're here to provide a service that's meaningful and valuable. And part of that value is to tell certain people you're not going to do well in medicine or you're not going to be happy in medicine. Right. Because telling people they're not going to do well, that's kind of like something we don't say too much because you never know what people are and aren't going to do. Right. But we can probably tell after talking to you for 30 minutes, if you have an Instagram influencer mentality that, I don't know, doing this in medicine, that Instagram influencer mentality, uh, that's going to be a challenge for you to you know, get satisfaction if you go through this medical pathway with that type of mentality and you have nothing else that you want from it. Uh, well, I'm, I'm just curious. This is just, just out of curiosity. How do those conversations generally go? Well, as you can imagine, <laughs> it varies. Yeah. Um, most people, when they're told no, when they've made up their mind that they want something, they have difficulty accepting that. And in their head, because they don't have a lot of experience with what it really takes, and as Dave Taylor always says, it's abstract what it is to be an astronaut. So you make up in your head what astronaut school is likely going to be like, even though you have no idea. And so if somebody tells you, uh, listen, Dr. Hughes, you, um, you, you're not going to be an XYZ doctor, right? You in your head, your impulse is to be like, you don't know what I am and I'm not going to be. You can't tell me what I am and I'm not going to be. I can do it, right? But keep in mind, my partner has 30 plus years of education, of medical education, statistics, algorithms that he knows back and forth, right? He can listen to you and be able to reasonably place you within categories of different levels of success, likelihood, right? Yeah. So we're not just listening to you and just making up stories. We're listening to you based on metrics, based on math, and not just math over a year, but math over decades between the two of us. You know, we're talking about 50 years worth of medical education experience and being able to assess people. So the conversation can go from that to some people Honestly, they're relieved because in their head, they wanted to do it, but then they didn't think that they really wanted to do it. And right. they were just waiting for somebody to tell them, you know what, this probably isn't for you. And they're like, oh, thank God, right? Thank God, right? Because my mother's telling me I need to do it. Uncle Jimmy's telling me I need to do it. You know, and I'm just like, you know what, I, I don't know. And they're thankful that they get that information. And they're like, you know what, I'm thankful that you told me that because I was killing myself here trying to do something that inside I wasn't sure I really wanted to do. Yeah, that's that's my biggest fear when it comes to just that that, I guess, branch of students or potential students, the ones that aren't quite sure, but are doing it for they were pressured or yeah, yeah that, that's actually my biggest fear with people because a lot of them do get in because they work hard at it and then they get in and then it's not what they want. 
and you see it years down the line and it takes a real emotional toll on them and their patients. So uh, I, I, I think what you're talking about and I don't think what you're, what it, what you described to me was you telling them that they can't, it's more like right now your mindset isn't quite set up for what it takes to become an effective doctor. That's kind of what I'm hearing right now. Not that they can't. And you're absolutely right. And I'll add one other thing. Sometimes it's a combination of mindset, what your goals are, what you're trying to get out of it, and also your academic history, Yeah. right? Just because you want to be an astronaut doesn't mean that you will gain the right to don that suit and get into the pool and show them what type of astronaut you want to be. There are criteria that systems are using to determine who is likely to get an interview and who is not. If you are so far left, oftentimes we may not say you can't do it, but we may say right now, this minute, this application cycle, you shouldn't do this. Right. You should probably do this, 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 and this, which Dave Taylor will set out for everybody and say, I'm not telling you just come back to us in two or three years. I'm telling you in these two or three years, these are the things that you need to do. And these are the things that you need to accomplish. And if you've done this, then when you come back, you will be more viable, right? Many people, they take that information and they're like, great, that makes sense. I'll work with you in the next two to three years to make sure that we get this stuff correct. And we'll see medical school in two to three years. There are some people that they're like, oh, no, 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 no. I'm not having that. I'm applying now. No, no, no. I want to be in medical school by 2021 or whatever year it is. And this is what I'm going to do because in their head, they're not taking no for an answer. Right. But those people generally Either they're not successful or they may very well be successful in getting in. But then the minute they get into medical school and they take that first exam, they'll call and say, what in the world did I get myself into? This is crazy. I don't know if I'm going to make four years of this, right? Because they kind of didn't necessarily listen to the advice and people need to realize that there are different levels of advice. Goes back to what we talked about earlier with the Starbucks analogy. Everybody who claims to be a coach, an advisor, and a mentor doesn't have the skill set to be a coach, an advisor, and a mentor. A lot of people out there are just saying, oh, uh, um, Dr. Hughes is a doctor, so let me talk to him about uh, what's the best way to study for this portion of the USMLE. Right. But just because you're a doctor doesn't mean you're a medical educator. Right. I've been a doctor for many years and there's certain aspects of medical education that I'm like, uh, you probably need to speak to Dave Taylor about this particular aspect, because this is hardcore medical education, even though I'm the doctor. Right. When you look at programs like Princeton and Kaplan Review and listen, I'm not. I'm not disparaging these programs. I mean, they've obviously been around for a long time, decades, and they're very successful, but they have convinced a lot of people that that's what they need to succeed. But most people who take those programs don't necessarily get out of it what they envisioned because they made a choice to engage with these programs 
without any knowledge as to actually what they need. And everybody needs something different. So that's why we specialize in giving customized coaching. And my last example is, think about it like this, right? There's some people who want to be track stars, right? And they grew up being able to beat everybody on the block, you know, racing everyone on the block. They're the fastest ones on the block, right? But then when they get to the all-county meet, and everybody who was beating everybody on their respective blocks gets together in that one race, they're coming in last or near last. And they're asking themselves, how in the world am I coming in last or near last? I've never come in last or near last in my life, All right? But competition is progressive. It's pyramidal, right? And so therefore, you have to then at that point in time, ask yourself, is just running faster until your heart busts out of your chest, the way you're gonna make it from being last to being in the top three? I say no. And everybody at Ascension Medical Educators, we say no, why? This is where coaching comes into play. There's only so far you can take your God-given talent to run fast. However, if you work with a coach who is a sprinting professional in mechanics, that coach can take you from running fast to running extremely fast by watching your form. Where are your eyes? Where are your arms? What's your rhythm? How many steps are you taking, right? Where is your body momentum? Where's your body mass as you come out of the blocks, right? What's your stride? What's your breathing? That coaching is what takes somebody who was naturally fast to two years later, breaking world records, right? Because they used coaching from a professional coach, not just somebody who said, I can teach you how to run fast, to utilize mechanics and the pathophysiology of running fast and using years and decades potentially of coaching other fast people to fasterness, if that's such a word, to make people faster. And it's the same thing with medical education. Some people are naturally smart, but when they get into the mix of competition of being with everybody who's naturally smart, they're not naturally smart anymore relative. Oh, well, I'm glad you said that. That's one of the first conversations they had with us in medical school. They sat us all down, all 200 of us, and told us, you all have high GPAs, you all had great MCAT scores, but you can't all be number one. <laughs> you can't all be number one. There's going to be a number one, and there's going to be a number 200. Prepare That's yourselves right. now. <laughs> and with each level from junior high to high school to college to medical school. It gets harder, more competition. To to fellowship, it is like you are essentially uh, with every level, the number of Rafael Nadal's, right? Who you are playing against increase, increases, right? At first you're just playing Asante Dixon in high school, <laughs> right? right? And then when you get to college, now you're playing Asante Dixon's cousin, 
right? But when you start getting into the end of college and medical school, now they're throwing in Pete Sampras. Now they're throwing in Rafael Nadal. Now Serena Williams coming on the court, taking her racket out the bag. And you're like, what is this, right? So the only way you're going to survive against Serena and then next year, it's going to be Serena times two. Then the next year, they're going to throw in four more Serenas. They're going to throw in Venus, right? Is you have to utilize what skills you naturally brought and you need coaching. Right. Yeah. I always uh, tell people uh, about when I saw Percy Harvin at a track meet back in what, 2005 or 2004, you, you really saw a difference in what a professional ad- or a future professional athlete looks like versus just high school athletes. It's high school athlete. Yeah. It's night and day. It's different. Right? It's night and day. And that's why a lot of athletes, let's t- look at football players, right? They come out of their high schools and they are champions. They're all county, all state. But then when they get into college, if they make the roster, they stuck to that bench. Yeah. Well, right? making and it, I, I, and I always say this too. I always say this too. If you make it to an NFL roster, even if you ride the bench, you're still probably better than 99% of the entire world, <laughs> even if you ride the bench. But once you're there on the team, riding the bench emotionally still hurts a little bit, you know? Okay. So, boom, you just hit something very important, right? It takes me back to something you said earlier, which is what's the financial toll? And we talked about the financial toll. Let's add this. What's the emotional toll of medical education? There's a huge emotional toll to being persistent, resilient, and motivated, right? Mm -hmm. And that is dealing with loss, dealing with failure, dealing with studying for 16 hours a day, and then you only get an 81, right? Trying to associate yourself with uh, success when something that's very important to you is not working out the way you thought it was going to be. How do you think that affects people? It affects people- um, Tremendously. 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 Yes. That's a a great word. Tremendously, right? One of the things that we deal with a lot and we work with is how do you disassociate your value as an individual with your economic progression or lack thereof because in medical education that is something that's very natural if you got a 95 percent or a high pass in the last physiology exam and that friday night everything's good right you feel fantastic yeah feels great feels great you know somebody steps on your sneakers and you're like that's okay (laughs) that's okay i've got a brush at home i'll brush that right on off don't worry about that right but you get a 60 on that exam and that same person steps on your new kicks, all of a sudden you're either depressed or you're ready to fight. You're not the same person because you have essentially equated your worth with your academic progress, right? And that is a hard way to live for four years of medical school, one year of internship, and at least three years of residency and potentially throughout your career as a practicing physician. And we are going to talk about briefly now, I'll tell you, there is a lot of mental challenge in medicine amongst providers that are dealing with being an astronaut school for so many years and being so focused and intent 
and, and, and resilient, right? And if you don't have ways of really decompressing, you internalize a lot of that, and that can really manifest in some behavioral challenges, right? And so we often, when we are talking to students uh, or even physicians who come to us for uh, enrichment, uh, we talk to them a lot about that is, you know, separating yourself from what you do and separating your value from value that is artificially placed on academics and uh, uh, success achievement in medicine. It's a very dangerous line you're, 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 you're walking. And what many people, if they're really thinking about it or listening with a third ear or paying attention, from the time people get into that pre-med pathway in college, you can start to see the stress. The, the uh, stress. The, I've always, because I work with adolescents and I work with a lot of grad grad level students, the hardest thing I think, well, one of the hardest things that I think a person will ever do is put 100% effort into something, fail at it, and then still be able to get back up and try again. It's one of right. the hardest things for a person to ever do in their life. So yeah, I hear you there. So you're saying Ascension Medical Educators tends to help with that or has a lot of experience with that sort of aspect of, of, of education. That's correct. That is because it's, it's, it has to be soup to nuts, right? When we started in the beginning, you said, wow, you are really soup to nuts, right? Well, yeah. I don't know if that was the phrase we used. But that, wasn't, yeah, that was your phrase. I had never heard no, that no, one before. <laughs> that was a, that wasn't the phrase, but soup to nuts, right? Yeah. Well, you can't just be soup to nuts, pre-med to practicing physician and not also be soup to nuts, which is clinical educational application, but also mental health and working on people individually as people, right? Which I'm guaranteeing you, you could pay $36,000 for that Kaplan or Princeton review class. And they are not going to go into how you deal with loss, how you deal with failure, how you deal with challenge, right? And last, you know, we're using sports analogies, right? I've always been fascinated by inside linebackers in the NFL. Right. I'm fascinated by inside linebackers because these are men that their responsibility is to defend the run primarily. Right. That's their primary responsibility is to defend the run. However, if you're a football player, you know that as a linebacker, the first move you're making is usually an up move and a step back. Because as you're defending the run, you have to be cognizant of what? The pass, the pass. Yeah. right? Yeah. And so therefore it is, you're down, you're watching, you're down, you're watching, the ball is snapped, your first step is up and potentially back a step and then you commit back to the run if that's where the play is going, right? There is a mindset that you have to have that defies logic for those who don't really know the rules of the game, right? And oftentimes as a linebacker, there's somebody who may be trying to block you. And so therefore, as you're being blocked, you've got somebody trying to put your brain in the ground, but you also have to turn your head to the side, look beyond him and keep your eye on what's going on with the play. So you're fighting off a block and simultaneously you're trying to get to the runner if it's a run. Right. 
right? You're doing two things at the same time and you're keeping your feet moving so that somebody doesn't put your butt in the grass, right? You don't wanna be, you don't, you don't be a statue and then you end up on your butt, right? And even if they do put you on the butt, on your butt, what do you have to do? Get up. Get up. Yeah. And pursue the ball. Play until the whistle. Play until the whistle, right? And what does that come with? That comes with training. And some kids come out of high school with that training. Some kids come out of Pop Warner with that training. But I guarantee you, the majority of those guys in the NFL, they learn that through coaching. Gotcha. All right. They learn that through coaching. And those who can't do that, they're on the sideline moping and they're at home at night with their heads down because the mental anguish of not being successful is truly, truly significant if you don't know how to deal with it. Right. Well, I'll tell you what, I know you got to get out of here. So this is just one quick question, I think, to, to wrap things up for us. And right now you're a practicing physician. We just discussed how hard it is to get through medical school. Can you tell us your opinion of your current career? What do people have to look forward to in terms of fulfillment? So, um, to be honest, as I always am, right? Um, whether people like it or not, uh, I think it's the New York mentality in me, which is I don't want to waste time. I just tell you what I think, right? You either take it or you leave it. I think that medicine is still extremely fulfilling. Um, there is sometimes an awe that I have when I meet a patient, talk to them for 20 minutes, and the next thing you know, I have a catheter in their carotid artery, and I'm flipping a catheter around and um, injecting embolic material into their brain. And I may have only spoken to this person for literally 20 minutes, right? And you have to ask yourself, wow, that is an amazing amount of trust that that patient has to have in me, a person that they themselves only met for 20 minutes to allow me to go into their body and potentially risk paralyzing them, stroking them, killing them. That is something that you don't get in a lot of careers, right? That degree of immediate trust. And that is something that people should not take lightly but it is an amazing, amazing honor, if you will, to be chosen as somebody in society who is trusted and somebody whose responsibility is to not abuse that trust, but to use that trust for good, right? We all grew up watching different type of cartoons, I think, right? And you always hear, you know, people using powers for good versus evil. Right? And there's some characters that they use their powers for good, and there's some powers, some, some characters that use their powers for evil. Right. And the fact that you have those powers is incredible in of itself. And the fact that I am, I can't speak for everybody else, okay? But I use those powers to the best of my ability to do good. Mm. And secondly, As much as medicine can be trying, it can be stressful, it can be tiring, it can be vexing. When I have friends or family members that are ill, 
I thank God that I am a physician because like any other public system, whether you get it for free or you pay for it, if you don't have an advocate in the system advocating for you, you are placing yourself in a position where you potentially could be swallowed up by the system. And me being a physician, being able to, when my dad was sick, being able to be in the room with him. And when he introduced himself to Dr. XYZ, he would say, this is my son, Dr. Dixon. He is a resident at Blase Blah in Blase Blah. He is a fellow at Blase Blah in Blase Blah. There was without question a certain degree of instantaneous attention that was paid to my dad as opposed to others who don't necessarily have that individual. And by no means am I saying that physicians are out there giving people unequal care based on whether you have a son or a daughter who's a doctor. But what I am saying is that realistically, this is something that uh, I'm proud to be able to help people navigate the healthcare system, right? And, and it's, it, it, it's it's something that that I'm very thankful for, and there may be you know detractors out there who say, oh, he's he's essentially saying that you know he's happy that he can you know navigate the system in ways that the rest of us can't. Uh, I don't know what I'm saying, but what I am saying is that there is fulfillment in knowing that if you have a brain or a spine injury or a brain or a spine issue, and you call me, that. I could potentially help you navigate your own care of the care of your loved ones because of our association together and our friendship, right? Um, that I'd be happy to be able to do that for you. Because surely if you called me and said, you know, your car, your Tesla is knocking, right? And you were like, hey, Asante, what do you think about that? I'd tell you, call the Tesla dealer because I don't know nothing about Tesla's knocking. Right. All right. Or if you said, you know, here, I just, uh, I'm in this, uh, this place in LA and, you know, they're saying that there's a different tax law here in LA than there was back in Florida or Virginia. And what do you think of Sante? I'd tell you, you need to talk to your accountant because I don't know anything about tax law. Right. 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 You on your own. And you'd be like, Sante, I just lost my house. Right. And, and I asked you what I should have done about it. And you told me, call my accountant. Well, well, you know, why couldn't you tell me? Well, I can't tell you because I don't know anything about it. So unfortunately, in that aspect of your life, I'm of no service to you. But I can offer you this service. Right. And that's a good feeling. Yeah. So I think uh, for people that are uh, interested in pursuing a career in medicine, you have that to look forward to. You know, finding a solace in, in what you do and how you help people. So um, I'm going to, because I know you got to run, I'm going to post all the contact information, website and everything in the description. Thank you very much for stopping by. I think you did a fantastic job. All my guests have been so great. <laughs> I think you're guest number 20. You did great. Thank you so much for, for stopping by. I appreciate all your time. Have a great day. Thank you so much.